Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here as ever with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, it's been less than a week since we were last on the microphone. We finally got there. How are you? Um, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I tend to feel like at the beginning of the show there is a bit of pressure to say like I'm doing well and everything's wonderful. But to be honest with you mate, I've spent the evening battling with technology in a way that I did not enjoy at all uh, and then seeing my football team lose. So I'm coming to this, hoping hoping that the world of film can kind of lift me out of my malaise and uh, distress at what has been a thoroughly wasted evening. Uh, but this won't be wasted, Paul. This will not be wasted because this evening, rather excitingly and uh, sort of committedly, we're recording not one but two episodes and they're both going to be going out in, in short order. One of those is going to be the episode that you're listening to right now in your ears. Um, and that is a regular episode of the show, a numbered episode of the show. Uh, and then we'll also be throwing out a Halloween special because it is that time of year. So that'll be in your feed as well. Check it out. We're going to have a countdown on that one of the things or ideas that most scare us. Uh, we've gone a bit esoteric, but I think you'll like what we've come up with. Before that, though, a regular episode of the show is forthcoming, and that entails a bunch of su- stuff, not least two feature reviews this week of Borat subsequent movie film, the follow-up. <laughs> so always makes me chuckle, <laughs> the, I'll be honest. Yeah, the follow-up <laughs> to Borat's uh, first movie from many a year ago now, uh, in addition to the new one from Sofia Coppola, that's On the Rocks. So we'll get to those in due course. But before all of that, we always start off in the foyer where we uh, talk about some film news, some things that are kicking off in the film world. And Paul, you usually steer the ship when it comes to that section. What have you got this week? Uh yeah, it's getting thinner and thinner on the ground at the moment, I'll be honest, but there is certainly still some news out there. Um, this is the news, and it won't be the first time we talk about Ben Wheatley on today's episode, but this is the news that, um, following on from Rebecca, and in fact Tomb Raider 2, the um, the video game adaptation sequel, uh, Ben Wheatley uh, has signed on to direct a sequel to The Meg. Um, this one's kind of caught me by surprise. You go from, I say remaking Hitchcock, it is a fresh adaptation, but we'll get to that, we'll get to that, I guess, in a bit. Um, yeah, you go from doing Rebecca to Tomb Raider 2 and then to The Meg 2. Um, Pete, do, does The Meg need a sequel? Do we want a sequel to The Meg? And if we do have to have one, is Ben Wheatley the right man for it? I mean, I'll take a sequel to the Meg. Don't get me wrong. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think I think you know this of me that if you know if you've got a shark in your movie, more on them in the Halloween episode, by the way. But <laughs> if you've got a shark in your movie and it's not the absolute bottom of the barrel, then I'll be there. I'll, I'll happily be there. So yeah, from from that point of view, the Meg was fun enough. I mean, maybe a little bit um, underwhelming compared to perhaps what we hoped for from it, but it had its moments. It was it was good uh, popcorn fodder. Ben Wheatley doing that stuff. Interesting, I guess. Um, yeah, more power to him. I'm, I'm in. I mean, how are you feeling about this? I, I'm, I'm intrigued by this, to be honest. I think we're going to get, if it, if um, Rebecca's anything to go by, we're going to get an incredibly beautifully shot, uh, ridiculous shark blockbuster. So I'm quite excited. I'm, I'm very intrigued to see what Ben Wheatley does with this, to be honest, and more power to him for... Uh, for mixing up his mixing up his schedule, I guess. I imagine it's the kind of thing that's a lot of fun to film. So um, I imagine it'd be quite an enjoyable experience putting this one together. So um, yeah, roll on the Meg too. Yeah, <laughs> it should be fun. Yeah, is this is this sort of marking out though? And, and maybe this is a stretch. So so reel me in. But are we marking out the fact that there's a bit of a shift going on with Ben Wheatley from kind of um, maybe auteurish is is the wrong word and a, a word that I kind of hate using anyway. But from from sort of uh, 
an instantly recognisable style of filmmaking to a bit more of a hired gun of a director, a guy who'll take on, you know, genre projects of different kinds um, and apply his, you know, particular twist, uh, twist or, or flavour to them rather than going, oh, yeah, of course, that's the new Ben Wheatley joint. You know, do you know what I'm getting at with that? I do see where you're coming from, but didn't we? So I think we said a couple of weeks ago that he'd been beavering away on something behind the scenes that he mm. shot in lockdown. Um, yeah. So it might be, it might be that he's realised the best way to get his smaller, more interpersonal projects made is to jump on board with the bigger projects. Yeah, so, true. Um, yeah, it could be. I do see where you're coming from. Um, it's interesting. It was very interesting to see him a attached to Rebecca, definitely Tomb Raider two, and now the Meg two. So yeah, he's certainly broadening his bow in terms of what he's doing. But I can. I can see it from both sides, to be honest. I, I think, mate, and it is a good way to get your, your smaller, more intimate projects made. If you could make a get, certainly get some profit for a studio, they're more likely to fund your smaller films. So it could be he could be playing the system that way, I guess. But yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, and yeah, whether or not this is the direction he ultimately goes in, we shall see. Yeah, and playing the system, and also I, I'm sure that it's no criticism of Ben Wheatley, but he probably quite likes money, and this is gonna <laughs> it's gonna work out quite nicely by the sounds of the slate of uh, upcoming projects. What else have we got, Paul, on the radar for this week? Um, the only other thing that I wanted to bring up this week, um, and we've talked quite a lot about this with the sort of the, the closure of Cineworld and cinemas being on limited opening time. Um, and it looked like the catalyst for that was certainly the delayed uh, Bond release. By the time it comes out, it will be. It's rumored to be out in twenty twenty one theatrically at the moment, and that will be a whole year late. Uh, but if reports are to be believed, and no one seems to be talking on this, so this may well be unsubstantiated, but it hit a lot of media outlets. So I think there may be some truth to it. Um, is that Bond very nearly? Uh, no time to die very nearly went to a streaming service uh, with Apple and Netflix both interested, but MGM asked for. $600 million is the rumoured asking price for Bond to go to a streaming service, at which point Apple and Netflix went, no, I think we're right, um, and and walked away. So I this is an interesting one. This is a very interesting one for me. Is I don't. This is the kind of thing that, if this happens, this, this is the kind of thing that could spell the death knell for cinemas, to be honest. Um, if a big, massive release like this ever does go to streaming, I think cinemas could be in real trouble here. Um, and if the if the pandemic's still fully sort of fully in play, uh, come April twenty twenty one, hopefully not. Whether or not MGM will then look to renegotiate and sell again, because they're supposed to have lost something like twenty to thirty million on this already with sort of marketing spend and that kind of thing, anticipating the release date. So, Pete, any thoughts on this? Do you think it would be worth six hundred million? I think we. I'm sorry, but just before I just before you jump in, I worked out that Apple, I think, at four ninety nine a month would need it would have needed twelve million new subscribers. Uh, to make this worthwhile for them so yeah any thoughts on the asking price or yeah and a, a thought that sort of flashed into my head when i read the story is that you know we saw that this kind of potentially precedent-setting thing with the release of mulan on disney plus where it went up for a premium price on top of the subscription and i just saw another sort of nightmarish possibility which is that you get a netflix pay-per-view tier um where you've got something as sort of prestige quote unquote as the next James Bond film launching on the platform but you've got to pay 15 20 pounds to access it and whether you know whether they take that risk who knows but I guess my um, cynicism has been heightened by the fact that I'm a football fan and we're being gouged all over the place now by um, not least the Premier League uh, you know putting out uh, pay-per-view football matches at 14 pounds 99 each or 14.95 not to do them a disservice with that four discrepancy um but yeah i i, I don't know I, I don't know 
how I feel about all of it. I mean, like I said previously when we talked about the pushback, I kind of feel for someone like Ana Diarmas, who I think was about to blow up and become, you know, an even bigger star than she is already. Um, and that would have happened, you know, by now. Um, and obviously has not happened. Uh, and I mean, in the grand scheme of things, there are more important things than her career trajectory, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I do worry like you do that maybe by the time the what is it april next year release comes around there's still going to be a reluctance to or maybe even an inability to roll out you know wide at the cinema so we'll see i'm already feeling depressed and we've just started the show <laughs> no and i said yeah it's a bizarre yeah it's an interesting one because apple aren't afraid to splash the cash i didn't I, this is news that passed me by and maybe we did mention it on the podcast i don't think we did that apple have spent rumored to be 180 million on scorsese's next film though killers of the flower moon with um dicaprio which which has got dicaprio attached to it so they're not afraid to splash nearly 200 million and i don't i know i know um the irishman wasn't cheap for netflix so i'd be interested to see what their what their cap is on what they're willing to spend to get content onto the platform from mgm's perspective i can see this makes sense because minimum this is going to make back well in a healthy box office in a healthy box office period people go into cinema bond probably 800 to a billion i would i wouldn't say is too far off the mark for what that could bring in so 600 on that basis 600 million seems reasonable but um yeah yeah and presumably there are distribution deals to be done in other territories as well right yeah um because it's a, a movie that will do big business in asia for example so yeah we'll see a lot of bean counting and number crunching to happen i guess over the coming months with um with things like the bond film and and hopefully we just get in the end an experience that you know is enjoyable and doesn't cost the earth <laughs> that's what we can really hope for at this stage i think yeah absolutely but yeah whenever it comes out we'll undoubtedly see it but i personally i'd want to i want to see bond on a bigger screen possible to be honest that's what it was made for so um fingers crossed it does get a theatrical run uh and yeah hopefully april 2021 hopefully will be when we finally see it uh, that's it from me for your weekly news update. Well, um, with that very formal ending to the section, Paul, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll bounce out of here. We'll come right back, though, with the section that we like to call Popcorn Movies right after this. So, yeah, this is the section of the show, as Pete just said, that we call Popcorn Movies. Uh, this is where we talk about any films that we've seen over the past, in this case, six days, I think, quite possibly. Um, so I've managed to squeeze a fair amount in over the past six days um, yeah this is anything we've seen of any age whether it be at the cinema whether it be at home whether it be on streaming services wherever we've watched it um, the first one from me this week uh, as I've mentioned last week is I've been going through Michael Mann's back catalogue uh, and for the most part it's been very enjoyable until I got to this uh, a 1989 TV movie called LA Takedown um, this was originally a pilot for a cancelled, I think, CBS TV series, um, and it's probably best known for by the fact that Heat um, is pretty much a remake of this film. Um, if not a remake, then it's it's heavily inspired. There's certain scenes that are exactly the same. The premise is exactly the same. Um, you've got and and unfortunately named Scott Plank uh, in here, and Arthur Alex MacArthur. Michael Rooker shows up here. He's probably the biggest name in this. The problem with this, Pete, is that it's the pilot to a 1980s TV series. The fact it's directed by Michael Mann almost feels here nor there, um, because this has none, I would say, almost zero of his kind of usual calibre of his characteristics of directing. And it it's bizarre to watch this now, because for me, this harks back to a day when TV and film were two distinctly different things. 
And it, I was talking last week about a made-for-TV film called Jero Mile that he directed, um, but that felt even more professional. It felt like 10 times more professional than this because at least it was a film made for television as opposed to a pilot for a TV show, if that makes sense. So the issue is this is the pilot to a TV show sort of repurposed into a film, and it's just not very well made. The acting is not great. The, his lack of the style that you normally associate with Michael Mann just isn't there. And the film feels very, very flat. I mean, it's it's a cure for anyone who loves Michael Mann and loves Heat. Like, this is a very interesting curio to watch. Because I said, scenes scenes of it are almost shot for shot in Heat. Um, and that's quite interesting. But as a kind of film in its own right, it feels it's not great. Um, I've struggled through it, I'll be honest. So, yeah, it's probably the, the weakest effort I've seen of Michael Mann. Mm. Um First for me this week then. But I was going to ask you actually, by the way, all these Michael Mann uh, films that you're reviewing, are you watching them through a box set or are you watching them off of a streaming service? Uh, no, a mix of a mix of ma- mainly Blu-rays to be honest. I think I've rented mm. I rented Ali, um, and the most of them I tend to have owned. Um, yeah. Jericho Mile I did source from uh, Jericho Mile is actually on YouTube in its entirety. If anyone wants to know where it is from last week, so nice. Um, right, first for me this week is one that I have accessed through. Oh, this is something I wanted to talk about because I feel like you're already a subscriber and I've jumped on board recently. BFI player, Paul. Do you subscribe it's at the moment? fucking great, isn't it? Isn't it tremendous? <laughs> yeah, and, and just to, you know, as a, a sort of, um, you know, community service here or, or service to our listeners, at the moment, if you're a Prime Video subscriber through Amazon and you want to get BFI player, you can get three months for 99p a month. So, um, you know, get on it, I would say, because the library is fantastic. One of the things I've seen through that service of late is Anna Biller's uh, film Viva. Anna Biller is the woman who wrote and directed The Love Witch, which we reviewed on the show, what, a couple of years ago now, right, yeah, Paul? Which so, is, yeah. yeah, this kind of uh, pastiche of a sort of bygone era of filmmaking and um, almost like a, a dismantling or, or critique of a certain period of... Um, let's say, uh, uh, limited uh, feminism or or at least wrestling with some of the issues in filmmaking and representation of men and women on screen. Viva is very much in that vein. It's an earlier film from 2007 in which Anna Biller is not only the writer and director and I think, um, you know, producer and tea maker on set and any other role that she could have given herself, but she's also one of the stars of the film. And it is this kind of note-perfect... 70s movie in a kind of um you see a sort of mashup of a a load of those you like russ meyer movies for example exploitation (laughs) movies of various kinds but then maybe not with the kind of pizzazz that you'd expect from a russ meyer uh here a lot of it is quite static it is quite um sterile might be the wrong word because everything is so lovingly recreated and the set dressing is beautiful and like I say it's a sort of note perfect rendition of what one of those films might look like and might sound like all the way down to the deliberately stilted wooden dialogue between the characters I think the issue I have with this and I had to a good extent with The Love Witch both of which are films that I like is that perhaps the point is overmade. Perhaps this film runs fully two hours and it just feels like by the second half it's not got enough ideas to justify that running time and so once you cotton on to what it is that it's doing it can be a little trying I think. 
Um, I, you liked The Love Witch quite a bit, right? I liked it, yeah. I didn't love The Love Witch. No pun. <laughs> that's a terrible pun, not intended. Uh, but I liked it enough. So I'd be, intrigued, I'd be intrigued to check this out. I didn't know she had another film out, to be honest. So um, Yeah, yeah. It's, it's worth it, man. It's worth it. But I think you'll understand what I mean when... Um, yeah, even though she'll, you know, it'll take turns, she'll throw in sort of song and dance stuff towards the end. There's a kind of um, psychedelic trip sequence with the sort of hand-drawn animation, which is creative. There's so much creativity on screen, but, you know, like, um, uh, it, go with me on this. You know, with uh, Tim and Eric, for example. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Eric Wareheim and Tim um, Heidecker, who make uh, Tim and Eric show great job, awesome show, great job, or whatever, where they pastiche, like, um, what do you call that? Public access television. Public, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, public access television. And those are sometimes absolutely inspired, kind of ingenious send ups, but you can't watch too much of it unless you're super high i don't think you can watch too much of it without it being a little bit much and i kind of felt that way about this as much as i admire annabella as a really interesting clearly very driven and clearly very talented filmmaker so i liked it but i didn't love it that one's viva and it's on bfi player now which you should get by the way um paul what's second for you uh, bait's on bfi player as well pete i believe at the moment and that is a film you absolutely must watch you are correct um, it's fantastic uh, that's not my popcorn movie though my next popcorn movie is one that i think you've seen pete and i don't think you went too much on it if i remember rightly but you'll probably correct me in a minute when i tell you what it is uh, it's vivarium um from 2019 directed by Lorcan and Finnegan. did you like it you you know what this is vivarium the kind of um creepy thing yeah yeah, I've kept it for the Halloween episode. I Have watched you? it this week. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Okay, but but um, we can talk about it now. Well, you brought it up, so we'll talk about it now. Okay, we'll talk. We're sorry, we'll talk. We'll talk about it now. Um, I, I rather enjoyed this. I'll be honest. I thought it was legitimately quite creepy in places. The premise of it is you have a young couple played here by Imogen Poots uh, and Jesse Eisenberg who uh, look are looking to buy a house, looking to settle down, um, and meet a very very creepy estate agent who takes them to view uh, a very nice looking house from the outset. Everything looks a bit tidy. Everything's probably a bit too polished um, to be to almost too good to be true, you might say. Um, and it turns out that it is. Um, and they end up stuck in this mysterious house. Um, and th once they leave the house, they realise they're in fact stuck in this mysterious neighbourhood that everything looks identical, all the houses are identical, all the roads seem to lead to nowhere, and they can't escape. They are then, at some point in the film, presented with a baby um, that grows up into one of the creepiest kids and adults I've seen uh, committed to screen for quite some time. I quite enjoyed this, I have to say. Um, I thought it was—I thought it maintained a very good atmosphere. I thought it was creepy as shit in places, um, and it did—it did kind of creep me out. So I—I I rather liked Vivarium, I have to say. Yeah, I, I'm pretty much with you, man. I—I I liked it as well. It was interesting that um, it was. I guess they must have shot very similar in a very similar period of time. Um, Eisenberg and uh, Imogen Poots were also in that thing, The Art of Self-Defense, with okay. uh, Riley Kearns movie, uh, Riley Stearns, excuse me, uh, sort of weird off-kilter indie movie that I reviewed on the show about m sort of martial arts and loneliness. Uh, check that review out if you're interested. But yeah, this one, I thought, um, of course, we're Lorcan Finnegan here, a different director and, and different filmmakers. And I think that it was presumably made on a, a limited budget um handled pretty well in the fact of like didn't you find yourself thinking 
how have they done that stuff where they've got external shots of neighborhoods that are ever repeating? And you imagine this is, you know, computer generated imagery, but it makes you think about how difficult or maybe simple those shots are to compose and put together. Yeah, it, um, it, 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 it had this kind of odd, this sort of otherworldly feel to it, which worked, yeah. definitely worked for the film for sure. Yeah, and I think that um, they're a pair of actors that I really enjoy on screen together, having now seen them in both of the aforementioned films. And so um, I like this Jesse Eisenberg. I mean, I like Jesse Eisenberg anyway, but I like this Jesse Eisenberg where he's this kind of um, both put upon, but also like in a, at least towards the beginning of the movie, like relatively capable guy. Because a lot of stuff you see Jesse Eisenberg in, he's a sort of neurotic, panicked, mm. uh, sort of agitated figure. And I mean, he becomes that here as well. Uh, but yeah, just seeing, I guess, what is like a thought experiment in how couples' life, like shared life, might play out over the years in a vacuum seemed pretty prescient when we're in the middle of the situation that we're in now, right? Like the fact that they're on their own in the house and they're cut off from everyone else at any time might have seemed, you know, sort of um, a, a tricky or distressing situation for them to be in, but all the more relatable with the fact that people are on lockdown and, you know, in quarantine at this particular moment. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it came out just at the start of lockdown, if I remember rightly, and I hadn't, I hadn't watched it at that point. I only caught up with it probably this, well, this past week. So yeah, I think it is all the more prescient in there. And um yeah, the the creepy kid is is terrifying. Um, no, I I enjoyed it. I think it was a, it was a solid solid genre piece for me. Yeah, yeah. The the creepy kid who not only is just generally creepy in his behaviour and mannerisms and seemingly grows up very very rapidly as well, <laughs> but but also speaks with the voice of both of his quote unquote sort of parents, surrogate parents, and so he'll just start mocking them in their own voices, which is a next level of sort of creepy and. Um, and difficult for them to deal with and and then yeah i mean it does a thing at the end that sort of um you know limited budget perhaps films of this type tend to do but it was pu pulled off with some aplomb i think and and yeah i liked it man and i wanted to mention as well by the way if we're you know shouting out bfi player i saw this through shudder which maybe as a result of losing the ability to go to the cinema i've now just gone all out on streaming services <laughs> shudder's the streaming service that shows only uh, thrillers and horror movies and this was one of them. And I would say, check that out too. You can get a free trial. It only costs $4.99 a month. you can work out how to use it and find things on it, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I got it through Prime Video as well. So it's just like another channel in, uh, the, okay. in the selection there. Yeah. I mean, Prime Video's layout is, is dog shit at the best of times. But... <laughs> But um, it's a nice addition to that. I don't know whether I'll keep it after the trial. I might just watch loads of films for Halloween week and then uh, bin it off in my uh, free period. But yeah, uh, Vivarium, pretty good. Good. Uh, well, Pete, what have you got next? Oh, Paul, I've got the best film ever made. Have uh, you really? Actually, next. Now, if you haven't seen this, I compel you. You might have to stop the episode and just go get it for yourself. <laughs> Are you aware of a Rutger Hauer film from 1992 called Split Second? I'm aware of it. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, Paul. Oh, Paul. Get on it. It's on uh, Prime Video right. at the moment. So for you and anybody else listening where any of this stuff sounds good. Okay. We've got a film set in the distant, imagine it, distant dystopian future. Right. You got that. In 2008. So we're in the dystopian future 2008 in London. We all know that city. And it's raining, Paul. It's raining so much that the River Thames is flooded. Everything's flooded. Shit. There's constant rain. <laughs> also, could it get worse? It could. There's a serial killer on the loose. But don't worry, because on the tail of the serial killer is a guy played by Rutger Hauer who goes by the name of Harley Stone. 
And uh, Harley Stone sort of marches around the city of London uh, or the, the sort of um, cheaply uh, constructed sets of this movie uh, in sort of big boots, a raincoat, chewing on a cigar and constantly demanding coffee. So far, so awesome. He's joined by a detective sidekick who's a little pen-pushing dweeb called Dick Durkin. Detective <laughs> Dick Durkin, who doesn't have a clue. And he just gets bullied by, uh, by Harley Stone for the opening sort of act of the movie. Uh, his love interest, uh, Rutger Hauer's character's love interest here, is played by a just luminescent uh, 30-some-year-old version of Kim Cattrall, sort of post-Big Trouble in Little China, but like way before sex in the city and stuff kicked off uh who is is something to behold in this movie and oh my goodness you know like when we talk about um like you'll say stuff which probably with quite a lot of justification like that you tend to prefer um you know kind of exploitation or like yeah. genre films more than i do or you go harder on them than me and i agree with that except occasionally one comes along where i'm like <laughs> yep this is all the stuff I want. This is all the stuff I want. The dialogue is ludicrous. The one-liners are memorable. The the way that, like, it's London, everything's flooded, but that doesn't consistently add up in the way things are framed. The fact that they kind of ca uh, travel around in seemingly some sort of, like, golf cart uh, on police business because it's the dystopian future because it's 2008? I don't know. The way that they just go to a strip club because that's what you do in a film like this to get across the idea that it's a dystopian future. I loved it, man. I loved it. <laughs> it felt like the kind of film that, you know, like when you have that option of hiring out a tiny cinema screen with all your friends <laughs> yeah, for your birthday or whatever. Oh, I'd throw this on. This was great. And Gary Scott Thompson, the guy who uh, is a writer on the project, has gone on to work on things like um, Hollow Man and even the Fast and Furious series so his career's obviously gone okay Tony Malum the director I think not so much but uh, oh check it out really do if you just want to like switch your brain off in the truest sense this is this is absolute primo primo stuff you need to check out um, uh, Rutger Heyer's take on Zayatochi as well with Blind Fury if you haven't seen that so definitely see if you if you want a bit more of a Rutger fix check out Blind Fury that's another uh, another classic that I think might appeal to you sir <laughs> nice nice uh, so yeah that one was split second Paul have you got any other I do I have one more uh, this is Rebecca the latest film from Ben Wheatley who we talked about earlier the um, the lavishly shot um, Netflix exclusive um, this has previously been adapted this is based on uh, a novel uh, originally which previously adapted by Hitchcock in 1940 I will hold my hands up when I do this review as I said last week and say I've neither read the book or seen the Hitchcock original film so I was coming into this completely cold knowing very little about the story um it's not reviewed particularly well in in a lot of corners um in it, it would be fair to say um and i i don't think a lot of i don't know for me this is you've got lily james and army hammer here um and kristen scott thomas are probably the the lead cast here um lily james as we talked about last week she's fine as an actress army hammer again he he's good in some things not so good in others um it does lack a bit of chemistry. It does lack a bit of tension. It should be a story that's kind of oozing in mystery. And that is, I would say, is missing a little bit here. Um, some of the chemistry between the leads isn't always that convincing. Um, and Army Hammer and Lily James aren't, they're not, they're not sort of screen chewing, very, very watchable people. I think they probably need to be, I don't know, they just don't know the performances came across a little bit jilted i would say in this um that being said uh i'm a sucker for a beautiful film unfortunately so this probably is probably what's carried it for me the production design is absolutely lavish 
The film looks incredible from start to finish. Um, and it is a certainly a beautiful, beautiful film. I mean, Army Hammer and Lily James are, are beautiful people. And it just, you can see where the money's gone. You can see the money's been spent on it. It's incredibly well shot. Um, some of the camera work is fantastic. It look, it just looks, it just looks incredible from start to finish. Um, it's not, but it's, it's okay. It's, it's probably the best I can come up with. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. Um, I would imagine if you've read the book or seen the Hitchcock, if you've seen the Hitchcock version, it probably suffers more in comparison to the source material and the, the Hitchcock version. Um, but it's an interesting departure from Ben Wheatley. I didn't think I'd see him do anything sort of as mainstream as this, um, or he- I'm hesitant to say it, as middle of the road as this. And that's kind of what it comes across as, as a bit of a, arguably a bit of a middle of the road crowd pleaser that doesn't quite know whether it wants to go dark or sexy or doesn't quite know what it wants to be. So I don't think it's a disaster. I think it's I think it's a relatively enjoyable film for the most part. It's just there's a lot of potential here, I think, squandered. What we have is a film that's very, very, very nice to look at, but not a great deal else going on in it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the sense I got from some of the early publicity stuff and then I remember uh, well it was earlier today actually when I messaged you about whether we should uh, make sure we'd both seen it to feature it on the show and you uh, wrote back with yeah it's okay I polished uh, I, didn't, I, did some, I thought I did well I might I not little spiel, rather than just going it's okay yeah but yeah. <laughs> yeah but but it seemed to sum something up about what I might be in store or what might be in store for me so I decided to uh, to give it a miss and watch another film instead and more on that in due course because is that the end of this section that is indeed the end of this section and that is the end of Popcorn Movies for this week. We'll be back after this with Coming Attractions. So Coming Attractions for this week, these are the films that are just about to uh, come across the horizon and be available to you, whether it be at a cinema or on a streaming platform or elsewhere. Paul, what have we got coming out in the near future? Uh, so I imagine by the time this episode goes out, these films will probably be in the cinema. I think uh, the first one releases tomorrow on the 28th. We're recording on the 27th and the other two are out on the 30th of October. So uh, the first one, we've got uh, The Craft Legacy, um, a Blumhouse-backed uh, belated craft sequel from director Zoe Lister, uh, starring Michelle Monaghan, Gideon Adlin, David Kovney, Kaylee Swaney, among other people I don't recognise. Um, so I think there's potentially a lot of newcomers or kind of relative unknowns here. Um, the Craft is not a film I've ever seen, Pete, I'll be honest. So I, how excited I am for a sequel is difficult to say. I thought the trailer looked pretty good. Have you, do you remember The Craft? Have you caught up with it before? Is this something you're familiar I with? I don't think I've seen it either, no. it's Obviously I n- know of it, but I don't think I've I've seen it. I don't think it was something that was on my radar when I was a a teen uh, when this thing came out. I mean, this would have come out, I would have been about 12, so maybe I was slightly too young yeah, for, well, for the not initial... target market. So it's essentially witchcraft, um, it's a film about witchcraft, young witches, essentially. Um, I think the original hit fairly well. I think, think definitely think it's got a light cult following. Um, I know, interestingly, Zoe Lister-Jones, I'm fairly confident, has put together an all-female crew for this one, which is always a positive thing. Um, I, yeah, so have you seen the trailer for this, Pete, or not? And no, I have no, not. I, thought, I um, think this. I think this looks like it might be thoroughly entertaining, to be honest. Um, and I'm quite quite excited to go and see it. I need to check out the first film beforehand. Obviously, there's no point going to see a belated sequel otherwise. But I think this looks alright, in fairness. Yeah. So, Zoe Lister Jones, do you know from anything in particular? Breaking mm. Upwards, not a film I've seen. Um, perhaps I haven't seen her stuff so far. No, not a director I'm familiar with. Um, uh, Gideon Adlin, you mentioned though, and I like yes. her, so may- yeah. maybe that's enough. Um, Michelle Monaghan's all right. Yeah, uh, yeah, we'll see, I guess. Well, Watch this space. Though, Pete, so I feel bad for you. <laughs> well, there are ways to see films, aren't there, Paul? <laughs> there are, uh, yes. 
what else have we got this week on coming attractions? Uh, so we've got um, what looks like an intriguing but slightly bizarre thriller called The Burnt Orange Heresy. Um, this is, and they said, I credit IMDb with these um, with these synopses, or synopsi, I guess. Uh, hired to steal a rare painting from one of the most enigmatic painters of all time, an ambitious art dealer becomes consumed by, consumed by his own greed and insecurity as the operation spins out of control. Um, yeah, this stars Elizabeth Debicki, Donald Sutherland, Klaus Bang, Mick Jagger, of all people, is in this as well. Um, the trailer for this looks decent. Um, it's not a director I'm massively familiar with, to be honest, and I've completely forgotten his name off the top of my head. Um, but I think this looks quite good, trailer-wise again. Pete, have you seen anything, seen or heard anything about this one at all? Giuseppe Capotondi apparently is your guy. Okay. Um, but in terms of stuff that, that he's done, n- no. I don't think I am super familiar. So what to expect, I don't know. Again, it might come down to just a few names in, in the cast, uh, you know, maybe top amongst them, uh, class bang. But I like Elizabeth Debicki. I mean, early reviews are middling. It's got a 57 meta score at the moment. Um, again, we'll wait and see. Uh, the poster art, not promising. Um <laughs> So we'll see. Fair. We'll see what happens uh, with with this particular one. But this is going to go to cinemas as well. You think? Yeah, because well, this is the kind of thing because there's like so few um, so few bigger releases at the moment. A lot of the the indie or mid budget stuff is actually getting a look in on big screens now. So um, yeah, this is definitely coming to cinemas uh, mm-hmm. this weekend. So for sure. Yeah. Um, the last one I wanted to mention this week. There's quite a lot out this week, but I just wanted to keep it keep it fairly brief. This is Mogul Mowgli, um, starring Riz Ahmed, directed by Bassem Tariq. Uh, this is about a British Pakistani rapper on the cusp of his first world tour, but he's struck down by an illness that threatens to derail his big break. Uh, this is probably out of the three that I've mentioned, the one I'm most looking forward to, to be fair, because Riz Ahmed's great uh, in pretty much everything he does. Um, I've not heard his music, but Pete, you said it's quite good. Um, it's all right. Yeah. It's all right, man. Like he can, he can definitely pull off pretending to be someone who's like a hip hop MC, which is all you can really ask for when this stuff crosses over. I think. Um, yeah, trailer wise, I thought this looked good. I think he's, yeah, he's a strong actor. Uh, Basam Tariq is not a director I'm familiar with, but that's that's sometimes a good thing. In all honesty, um, I thought this looks pretty polished, to be honest, and I think it looks like it would be. Um, potentially quite hard, quite hard hitting and quite enjoyable so out of the three that we've mentioned this is one, one i'm looking forward to the most i think yeah and, and just generally like riz ahmed's just fucking terrific in most things i think yeah i just super, think he's yeah he's such a sharp guy and he gets himself involved in projects that are generally really worthwhile so i'll check it out for sure and i mean the subject matter to me is is sort of intriguing enough um, and interesting enough to to get me through the proverbial door although it may not be an actual door it may be some sort of click in a digital world (laughs) made of dust and nothing but um it sounds like there is at least some stuff coming out which is something to be grateful for i think in this in this strange period of time uh cool well if we're all done that means we can jump straight out of this section and come straight back with two feature reviews the first of which will be Borat's subsequent movie film right after this so yes uh, this is the first of two feature reviews this week this is Borat's subsequent movie film or is its full title Borat's subsequent movie film deliver or delivery of prestigious bribe to American regime for make benefit once glorious nation of Kazakhstan. Uh, so, yeah, anyone familiar with Borat should know what to expect here. Sasha Baron Cohen revisits is probably, I think, his best character, certainly my personal favourite character. Uh, revisits character, I think, 14 years after the original film came out. So it's been a while since we've last seen Borat. Um, it's a follow-up, as I said, it's a follow-up to the original film. 
there's more narrative structure, I think. There's more narrative here than than there was in the first film. So it kind of follows the story of him him as a journalist, Borat, going back to the US with his daughter in tow this time um, to present her to um, Vice President Mike Pennis, uh, which, again, always makes me giggle. Um, that's kind of the crux of the story. Um, and then we get, thrown into the narrative mix, we get a fairly... A fairly a, not as many sort of stunts involving the members of the public um, and the kind of thing that you would probably be more familiar with Sasha Baron Cohen doing as opposed to straight-up narrative cinema. Uh, but before we get to what we thought, here's a clip. It was time for me to return to Yankee land to save my people. Ah! While Johnny traveled by luxury cruise ship, I was placed on cargo boat and arrived 22 days later. That afternoon, I procure a sleeping apartment for Johnny and transform it into accommodation suitable for an ape of his stature. So, Paul, if I lead off on this one, I want to do something that maybe is a little bit at odds with what we usually do in these reviews, which is start perhaps with, for me personally, and I want to hear obviously your response, start with the negative and swing round to the positive. And I think that will leave us feeling better come the end of the review. But I think that there is a, a, an issue here that has persisted between the first movie and the second movie and the character in general. And I just want to air that. And that is the fact that Inherently, it seems to me like the Borat character in terms of the relationship with the actual real life country of Kazakhstan is punching down. And that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't really I don't really find it that funny to just um, sort of stereotype an entire nation as sort of sister fucking backwards people, which is what he does uh, in both movies. And. And I think they've sent for me. I can hear something in the in the background. I think it's your end. Uh, yes. Uh, so you know that perhaps notwithstanding, I, I think I have to approach the movie um, on its own terms and tried to do that uh, as I did with the first one. And I've got plenty of, of sort of positive things to say. But does that bother you at all uh, about this character? The thing is, when I I thought this when I watched the first film again, like t for me, Sasha Baron Cohen's always tr trodden a fine line between kind of just the absolute absolute lowest brow humour and just being so silly that it makes me giggle even though I almost don't want to at times um, so I can I do see where you're coming from um, I think he kind of tries to address that in this film um, certainly more so in the first film I think he's certainly aware of it um, and I think there is an argument to say that potentially he's playing deliberately playing on those stereotypes because that's what people think and he's he's poking fun that that's people's perception of these countries maybe it's easy for him yeah. to say i think yeah that's it's a yeah. sticky it's a sticky wicket though that isn't it yeah. because then for for all of the um you know uh, well educated uh, sort of chin stroking uh, you know intelligence of sasha baron cohen there are going to be a horde of people who don't 
have that reading of the film and simply read it as a way in which we can just add to prejudice against people who are you know so socially socioeconomically like disadvantaged and i mean i've seen a story for what it's worth this week about a group whether this comes to anything or means anything who knows but of uh, us uh, kazakhstani or kazakh people who have suggested that the film could lead to anti um, kazakh violence uh, and you know is that meaning that that is going to be the case who knows who who knows but in a in a world like the one we live in now i don't find that like particularly helpful um and i don't really know why you need to name a country um but you know maybe that gets a slightly bigger laugh so it's all worth it but yeah i don't want to be like a downer i just do think that's worth addressing and not brushing over but then you know coming from the first movie expectations were sort of middling to relatively low and those expectations i think were exceeded by the, the film which i found fleetingly very funny and uh, made me laugh a number of times not least uh, when I wanted to know about probably my favorite character from the first movie which was uh, Azamat Bagatov and <laughs> Azamat Bagatov very soon we realize is no longer on the scene and has become effectively some upholstery yeah, but um <laughs> yeah enjoy that for yourself when you you get around to seeing this if you haven't already um but no Paul d tell me about it like what do you feel what's your sort of overarching feelings about this this particular I'll be honest, and I feel like I might be in a minority here. I feel a little bit let down by this. Um, I, the focus, I think, I don't think it'd be helped because I think the character is so recognisable now that they could, and there is that's that's certainly referenced in this film when he appears in the street and people are running around chatting Borat. Everyone recognises him as Borat. So for me, there is almost too heavy a focus on the narrative here and not enough on the stunts and kind of winding people up and and poking fun at the establishment, which is what I think Sasha Baron Cohen does well. When it's kind of when it's kind of like a, a straight up narrative comedy, I, I don't think the jokes land particularly well. Despite a great performance from um I think very from fairly newcomer Maria Bakalova um as his daughter, um I forgot on her name now actually. Um as Tutar. Tutar? Tutar yeah. as Borat's Tutar. I think she puts in a great performance, but for me, those kind of elements of it, the more narrative elements, and there are more, there certainly are, is more story here um, in the film. I don't think those particularly landed, to be honest, for me. And I think it's, for me, it was in part very, very funny. I just, I can't help but think this didn't need to be a film. This could have been, like, for me, like, if, if you see, uh, it, um, there's a bit, there's a, the whole scene of Rudy Giuliani, which is cringeworthy as fuck, and there's no doubt in my mind as to what Rudy Giuliani was doing. And that kind of scene should have, I think, would have been would have been more powerful. Just put out there as kind of like a send up in its own right. And there's there's a number of scenes. There's a scene when he goes to the rally when he starts singing the country and western song, which again is very very powerful. The song he sings is very very clever. The shots of the audience are, are shocking. I think these would have been better as sketches and more powerful as sketches. I don't think that those those bits for me are far stronger than the narrative elements. And I think Borat works better in small doses than he does over a whole film. Um, as much as I enjoy the character, but if you look at his 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 riposte to um, Rudy Giuliani, for example, when he just tore into him, like that was very very funny because it was Borat in small doses. I don't know. I I don't know. I liked it in parts, and the other parts just felt it fell a bit flat for me. I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, because it's interesting, isn't it? I think this is like a not knotty issue. Like like you say, they, those things might work better as sketches, but they were never going to be that because if it's not being too reductive, Sasha Baron Cohen is a man who also likes money, as many people do. And like, you know, he is a man also not afraid to churn out 
relatively low quality material i mean some of the stuff that, that his other characters you know the the feature films the the brothers grimsby for example yeah. um have have not necessarily gone under a sort of fine tooth comb to to sort of uh, get get out any issues or or sort of fine tune the material so i don't know man i don't know i think like i say because i went in with low expectations and because i got a few laughs out of it and because like you quite rightly mentioned uh, maria bakalova this actress that he apparently found from a casting call of 500 actresses she had just come out of uh, drama school she was 22 years old and they shot the film and um just impressed them so much not least because in the second round of auditions apparently she had to go into character and remain in character for about two hours uh dealing with unsuspecting people who didn't know that she was an actress and didn't know that baron right. cohen was an actor and in fact just took them at face value and had to convince them to to be taken at face value uh, i think she sort of blew them away and, and got the role and hopefully you know from this she'll have the platform to go on to to sort of bigger and perhaps better things as well i mean i like the film i like the film give or take but perhaps bigger and better things because here i think at times she outshines her co-star to some degree, right? I completely right? agree, yeah. I think she's 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 superb in this. She's, I think she's definitely the best thing in the film. And I think that's probably... And I think Sasha Baron Cohen, like... I don't know. Is he, is he, it would be easy to go, he's not quite as clever as he thinks he is. Um, but I, and I don't think he's quite as talented as he thinks he is, in, in all honesty. And that may, that's not meant to sound mean. Um, but no, I would agree. And that's something like this, I think, shows it. Like, And also, maybe that's because the Borat character is now very long in the tooth. Despite the fact that my wife told me the other day she still thinks that 90% of my comedy comes from Borat. So <laughs> um, th- I thanked her for that. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, but no, I, yeah, and I think, and I think there is as much as I've said that, and I think that's what, I, and I think, yeah, as much as I've said that, he's not as clever as he thinks he's. He's obviously done well to cast Maria Bakalova in this, and he's done well to let the limelight sit on her. So in some ways, I kind of take that back. But I think that's that's a deliberate move on his behalf is to shed some of the limelight on her because she is brilliant. Yeah, and Paul, who who said that to you again? Uh, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's come out uh, at the right time, I suppose. Um, it's come out at the right time in terms of the fact that it deals with things like mask wearing. Um, it deals with things like, you know, the impending American presidential election. Uh, on the other hand, on the other side of that same coin, does does Sasha Baron Cohen really think that this is going to make any impact on the presidential election? I don't think so. Does he particularly care? I'm not convinced. Um, so when... I guess the defense of a film like this by people who are sort of bigger acolytes is, oh, well, it's, you know, cutting social satire. I don't think that's the headline here. I think he likes goofing off and, you know, dick jokes and stuff. And if those are funny, more power to him. Um, And I enjoyed sections of this film a great deal. But, and I mean, uh, something I have to mention before we get on to the next review is uh, the, what's that called in the film? The fertility dance, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I'm... That, I don't know. That left me cold. Even for me, that was that was a touch, probably touching cloth. <laughs> I I think I just uh, I just was so impressed with with her with uh, Maria Bakalova in that sequence in particular because the absolute nerve of being able to to pull off a sequence like that is is something. So I don't know. You know, we everybody needs to laugh at the moment. Uh, hopefully, not laughing at people less fortunate than yourself um, if you can pick and choose with a project like this uh, but people do need some levity and I think that this provides some of that it just may not be the you know absolute rip roaring 
you know, gag fest that I might have hoped for, um, perhaps. But yeah, decent. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime Video. You can watch it right now. Check it out. Give us your thoughts. If you thought it was amazing, let us know. If you thought it was absolute trash, also get in touch. We're available all the time um, at Stranger Cinema on Twitter. Uh, Paul, shall we get out of this one? Because we've got another review to do. We have, yes. Uh, we have. Um, up next, we've got On the Rocks, the latest from writer-director Sofia Coppola. So it's time for feature review number two. As Paul has previously mentioned, this one is On the Rocks from Sofia Coppola, um, of course, uh, of the famous Coppola family. And uh, at this point, pretty established writer and director in her own right. Um, We have seen various career highs and lows, and I guess the one that stands out for most people might be lost in translation in terms of the Coppola projects that have really reached a wider audience and have become uh, somewhat a calling card for the director. But here we have a drama starring um, Rashida Jones and Bill Murray as a daughter and father pair, brought together by the fact that dad's in town and is basically initially a sort of shoulder to cry on, or at least fret on for his daughter who is particularly concerned about the uh, social activities shall we say of her husband played by Marlon Wayans Um, she is determined to find out what's going on whether her marriage is at threat and whether the lives of her children are going to be affected by what might be the fallout of possible infidelity we'll get into our full thoughts on this offering from Coppola right after this clip does my foot smell funny Because I was wondering... We're watching Breaking Bad. What? It's really good. It's a great show. Have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. It's great. It's not for kids. What? Was there something bad on? No. Yeah. Hey, look, I can shuffle. Oh, wow, that's great. (laughs) We learned that all young girls should know how to shuffle and how to... Bluff. Bluff, right. (laughs) And how do you bluff? Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Poker face. Nice, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this. Um, well, I think that we, you, you mentioned Lost in Translation just before the the clip there, and obviously the fact that Bill Murray is is in this, mate. And looking at the poster and looking at the character, I would say that Bill Murray plays here. Um, I think that people will possibly make comparisons to Lost in Translation. I don't think the two films are particularly similar. I'll be honest. So I would say get right off the back. Right off the bat, don't expect this to be um, another Lost in Translation because it's definitely not that. Um, it's, I'd say, very kind of it's very light in tone um, in comparison to a lot of Sofia Coppola's other work. And for me, I found it fairly, fairly captivating and engaging. If I'm honest, I thought Bill Murray um, is superb here, and I, but I got the impression, Pete, I don't know about you. Do you think Bill Murray's acting in this, or would you think this is just what Bill Murray's actually like in real life? I have a feeling this is just him just wandered onto set and he's just being himself. <laughs> As as Rashida Jones quips to him at one point, it must be great to be you or <laughs> yeah. something along those lines. And it does kind of feel that way. I mean, he's got a stretch to uh, driving a classic uh, drop top sports car and sort of delivering um, sort of cod philosophy on uh, the male libido. And that's pretty <laughs> much it for, for the Bill Murray role as, as sort of, um, you know, affectionately, uh, affectionately, excuse me, as I would view any Bill Murray performance I think yeah it's not a tremendous stretch no absolutely and it's nice to see it's nice to see Rashida Rashida Jones opposite Bill Murray I think she's I think she's a really good actress or actor sorry I keep doing that I've corrected myself again Uh, yeah it's nice to see Rashida Jones in a in a film I would say I don't think we get to see enough of her on screen in all honesty I think she's a tremendous talent
and I think they she has great um she has great chemistry with Bill Murray here. Um, and yeah, I I'll be honest, the I've read a few a few more negative things about this. I I enjoyed it. I thought the writing was snappy. Um, I thought it it moved along at pace. It was um, it was funny when it needed to be, uh, heartfelt when it needed to be. It wrapped up perhaps a little bit too quickly and tidily for my liking, and kind of felt a little bit rushed towards the end. But I don't know. I like. I, I had a good time with it. I, I'd really, really rather enjoyed it. I have to say. I agree with you on the first thing you said, and disagree with you on the second thing. <laughs> okay. uh, I agree with you fully that I think the chemistry between the two leads is the best thing about the film. Um, I like Rashida Jones, and I think that what she does best here is never letting herself be sort of acted off screen by Bill mm. Murray or at least outshone by by you know the the wattage that he brings to scenes even when he's seemingly not really trying um Marlon Wayans doesn't get to do too much other than look sort of suave and maybe a little bit duplicitous uh, to lead you in a certain direction with this movie um the the rest of it though man I, I read a thing today right and occasionally I just think somebody else gets it right or at least sort of uh, peers into my brain and pulls out <laughs> what I feel about this thing and it's this description from a user on letterbox called Lucy I don't know a second name otherwise I'd credit this person uh, this this review says uh, when I imagine the target audience for this, I see an upper-class woman browsing films to rent on the couch at 9pm, remote in one hand and a glass of wine in the other, after just giving her children a melatonin gummy and putting them to bed. I love that, she will exc exclaim to herself aloud at the end, and will have forgotten all about it by the next afternoon. This is exactly what I thought it would be. Seeing the trailer for this and then deciding to watch it is the most recent movie version of the Dead Dove Do Not Eat joke on Arrested Development. I just wish it wasn't so. I hate to use such a mean word, but all of it felt wooden. I just didn't care. And I kind Ouch. of felt that. I think I don't particularly like Sophia Coppola as a director, I've got to be honest. But even with that having been said, I think this is, to my mind, her second worst film. Um, I just, it felt so safe. It felt so like, uh, it, 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 like, um, like just wrapped in its own sort of self-satisfied cotton wool of being kind of privileged and drifting around. And what is she? She's a writer in the sense that they have well-lit scenes in a lovely apartment of her sitting at a laptop. She's like Carrie Bradshaw, but without the internal monologue. The character's uninteresting. As much as Rashida Jones does good work in the scenes that involve dialogue, the stuff is just so like, blah. Like, oh, just so blah. Like the whole thing and then the way that they round it off i mean i can't i don't want to spoil the film not that there's anything particularly scintillating to spoil here but my god the shrug of a sort of round off of the movie just kind of just left me cold i mean i can't hate it because it doesn't generate feelings strong enough for me to hate it i just i just gee, what is it what is it? It's just one of I mean, those. I don't know. I just found it. I found it a likable. I found it just a likable, light, enjoyable way to pass ninety minutes. I'll be honest. Um, I do agree. I do agree. It wrapped up too quickly. But you yeah. like. But you like her. Like I like her. I like Bill Murray. So yeah, I like those people. But like the story that they've told us here is, is nothing. <laughs> Like, it's nothing. It makes a movie like, I don't know, The Descendants or something like that seem like the finest, you know, uh, marital slash extramarital drama ever committed to film. I just, I, I don't, <laughs> I don't give a shit. Like, if I want to watch couples 
having issues when they're about 40 movies watch french movies watch you know whatever the the latest that that your favorite french filmmakers made i i just don't know what this was i don't know why it exists i don't know what we learn from it i mean there's a film that we reviewed not long ago that i went less on than you did but compared to this the film marriage story is like <laughs> 400 stories higher up that you know the building of of, of cinematic well i just don't i don't know i i I just find Sofia Coppola quite boring and I found this boring and it's a shame because I thought The Beguiled was probably her best film um, and that's the last one that we had before this one so for me like it's not that anything in particular just didn't work it's just the thing as a total just seems so inert and pointless and sort of yeah, I mean it, it is a fair it's fairly inconsequential it does it does feel very Apple TV um, if mm. that's if that is a thing, if that is going to become a thing, yeah, I mean, it looks like an Apple project. It feels like an Apple. It does. It certainly plays it very safe. I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue that. It certainly is. It's. It is. Uh, yeah. It's an inconsequential story. I, I can't argue with any of those points. But I just. I found the leads charming enough. I found the story amusing enough to. Yeah. I. I, I enjoyed it over the course of ninety minutes. I won't. I won't deny it. Um. I. I quite liked it. I see where you're coming from. Absolutely. It. It does feel very safe. It is a very kind of polished Apple ready product. There's there's yeah. no doubt in that. But and, and I mean take I guess I'll I'll give a pinch of salt to anyone listening to this. Take my thoughts with a pinch of salt because I don't think Lost in Translation is particularly good, honestly. I think Lost in Translation is, is kind of a bit bleary-eyed and sort of um, carbon monoxided and kind of drifting around Tokyo and not really having particularly anything to say and then someone whispers something in someone's ear. I mean, I, I don't hold that film in particularly high regard and that's a lot better than this, in my opinion. But yeah, I, I don't know. Like you say, I don't know what you mean by this feels like a very Apple TV thing, but I know exactly what you mean by that <laughs> and it seems yeah. appropriate. So yeah, it, you know, it, you know, if you find yourself with a glass of wine in, the ha- in one hand and a remote control in the other, and it's 9pm and your kids are in bed, you know, then uh, knock yourself out, I guess, with the rest of the bottle of wine. But, you know, drink, <laughs> drink responsibly and stuff. Um, cool. Well, we've got another whole Halloween episode to do, uh, guys. But before we get out of here, Paul, have we got anything to give credit to this week in particular? Uh, can I give credit to Banshee again? Because I bloody love it. I, mean, I talked about it last week. I think I'd watched the first two episodes. I've now watched a season and a half. And it's great. So if you haven't checked out Banshee yet, it's on Now TV. It's got Anthony Starr and his Homelander in the boys for anyone that's seen that. Delightful. It gets even more over the top. There's even more nudity. There's even more ultra violence. Um, and it's just a, a healthy dose of exploitation, exploitation escapism uh, on your TV set. So yeah, so I won't mention it again, I promise. Um, but yeah, it's great. Nice. Um, I guess then I'll give credit to uh, Whiskey Ginger, which is a thing that's available as a podcast. But I would recommend don't get it that way find it on youtube because then you can watch the actual video that um is the conversation that takes place between the comedian andrew santino and his guests the most recent episode at least that i've seen but i think the most recent episode is with malin ackerman the actress and it's one of those of which there are many to choose from where two people sit down and have a conversation for a bunch of time why would anyone listen to a thing like that paul i just don't know i have no idea especially uh, not this show <laughs> but but yeah uh i like andrew santino a lot anyway he does another show called bad friends with bobby lee which is enjoyable but and he's also in dave the thing with lil dicky like lil dicky's uh what's that on fx maybe comedy show at the moment um and yeah this thing is just a good good conversation he's a funny guy he's a sharp guy his guests tend to be pretty entertaining as well malin ackerman by the way is an absolute charm like more so than you could imagine i think from seeing her on screen so uh, that's whiskey ginger check it out it's on youtube it's free um 
I think we'll leave then for now. Uh, at Stranger Cinema on Twitter is the handle. We've got, of course, Facebook and Instagram and so on. We've also got an email address if you've got longer form questions. That's strangersinacinema at gmail.com. Get in touch, please. Paul, any last words? Uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Shut up and sit down.